every time you connect with a patient or a referring physician in a positive way, you are advocating for the value of radiology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Geraldine McGinty. Dr. McGinty is a physician leader working at the intersection of payment policy, strategy, and innovation. She is an internationally recognized expert in healthcare strategy and imaging economics, a radiologist, and an unwavering advocate for patient-centered quality care. As a faculty member at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City, she serves in several roles, including professor of radiology, as well as senior associate dean for clinical affairs. She is also the former president of the American College of Radiology. Dr. McGinty has broad knowledge of reimbursement, and is recognized as a transparent influencer and collaborative team-based decision-maker who effectively negotiates difficult strategic and contractual issues. Moreover, she's a boundlessly energetic leader and an advocate for the intersection of technology and healthcare. Dr. McGinty, I am just so grateful to you for spending time with me today and to share your thoughts on everything radiology uh, with our audience today. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. You catch me on a good week because I just came back from the ACR meeting. So I'm oh, feeling fully energized. <laughs> yes. And, and filled with hope and motivation for what's next. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. And we're going to dive into a lot of topics today, economics, advocacy, diversity and inclusion. But let's start here. How did you find your way into radiology? So I always talk about a summer in med school that I spent working as a nurse's aide um, in a hospital, big busy uh, teaching hospital in England. And what I would see is I would see the team gathered around the bedside, talking through what was going on with the patient. And then I would wheel the patient down to radiology. And that's where we would figure out what was really going on. So I loved that problem solving aspect. And I also loved anatomy. So that was where radiology crystallized for me. Amazing. And then what what ended up drawing you into to breast imaging? Yeah, you know, I trained, I finished my training in 1993. And Breast imaging fellowships were not that common at that time. But when I think back, I think it was the really the population health aspect that drew me to breast imaging. The idea of how would you create programs that impacted populations at scale. I also obviously really loved the ability to continue to be in front of patients. And, you know, I've been fortunate. It's also scratched that technology itch since, you know, the way I read mammograms today really wasn't even invented when I trained. So it's it's remained on all of those levels, a continued area of challenge and honestly, professional joy. And when did you end up in the US? So I came to the US for residency. Um, I did a six year medical school program straight from high school. That's typical in Ireland. And uh, then did my internship, which is sort of the end of your training in Ireland. You don't get fully registered until you've done your internship. And then came here, came to Pittsburgh in 1989 with my husband. Oh, amazing. So, okay, you've had a really incredible career journey. We you know hit on some of that in the bio, but bring us up to present day. What are you up to right now? How are you spending your time? Yeah, so I do a few things at Wild Cornell. I'm most of my time is spent with my role in the dean's office. So I have the clinical affairs portfolio. What does that mean? I report directly to the dean and make sure that he has all the information he needs to have on the clinical mission. And I have counterparts, obviously, for the research and education mission. Uh, so that could be everything from 
our hospital partner just merged with a 600 bed community hospital in Brooklyn. So how are we going to navigate that to senior faculty recruitments, to big initiatives when it comes to culture change or professionalism? So it's a broad and varied portfolio. I teach two classes in our MBA program, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about the MBA experience. And then doing a little bit of clinical work, the dean's office role was new about a year and a half ago. And I, I wanted to give it sort of dive in completely on that. But I've been, you know, sneaking in on the weekends to read a few mammograms and breaking news. I just signed up for a day a week starting in July. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm sure it'll be energizing and motivating to be back in the clinic as well as I'm sure oh, the sure. team will be happy to have a few extra hands uh, <laughs> like, in what's hopefully. going on right now. Okay, so we talked about your clinical experience. Somehow along the way, you get involved in economics research, which I guess ultimately leads to you getting involved at the ACR and ultimately leading the ACR. How does that come to be? What, what drives the interest in economics? You know, How did you start getting into that area and what happened next? So pretty much my first job out of residency, I was hired at Montefiore Hospital, which is a big teaching hospital in the Bronx to start an outpatient imaging center from them. They were losing outpatient volume to private practices. They wanted to create something that looked and felt like a private practice. So I got this, you know, pretty big job as a new graduate, going to construction meetings, hiring staff. <laughs> and, you know, among the many things that I realized and learned, one of them was I was seeing that, you know, we would do the same service for two different patients and get paid significantly different amounts. I mean, I went to a great program, but I came out of residency. I had no idea of the economics of healthcare or imaging. So, you know, that was a realization. And in a system like Montefiore, where you've got a lot of patients who are either insured with Medicaid, which doesn't typically pay as well as other insurers, or had no insurance at that time, because remember, this is well before the Affordable Care Act. So the question was, you know, okay, how are we going to make the economics of this work? We have some patients who are getting paid more for so we want to attract some of those, but we have a mission to, to take care of all of the patients in the Bronx. So I started getting interested in how the money flows in healthcare. So it was really, it started with kind of an operational challenge. And I was very fortunate that my institution sponsored me to go to business school. So while I didn't learn a whole lot about healthcare specific financing, I got a lot of the tools that you need to run a business and just to understand economics. And then Actually, my introduction to economics was I graduate from business school. My chair, Steve Amos, uh, retired now, uh, was about to come become board chair of the ACR. And he, you know, having very nicely sponsored me to go to business school, said, OK, this is how you're going to pay me back. You've got <laughs> to start volunteering at the ACR. Bill Thorworth, who's now the college's CEO, was then the chair of the economics commission. And he was putting together a farm team of people who would potentially, you know, get engaged in the various volunteer activities that the college has around the healthcare payment policy process. So that was my start. Wow. How did things resolve? Were you able to uh, get the imaging center to raise their rates and become competitive? Well, you know, the realities of the Bronx aren't unfortunately the same because it's the poorest urban county in America. So, you know, they, Montefiore, and it's a place that is very dear to me, still has that challenge of how do you take care of your community with this structural challenges around, honestly, the poverty of the community. But what I know about Montefiore, the department there is now under the very able leadership of Dr. Judy Yee, is that they will always do the right thing for the community and they, they always make it work. Yeah, amazing. So, you know, getting into the MBA a little bit, I also have an MBA, but I don't have an MD. 
I met a bunch of MD MBAs at a business school and it's been interesting. I'd say about half stayed clinical and the other half kind of just, you know, went into business and then, you know, kind of flavors in between that, but you, you stayed clinical and, and you used your MBA skills and then now you're teaching MBA classes. So what, what are you teaching and how, how should radiologists think about the value of an MBA? I mean, in, in your case, it sounds like you had a really passionate mentor guiding you. What advice would you have there? So what I always like to say to people, because I have this conversation a lot, is, look, you don't need an MBA to be a leader. I will say, though, and of course, I'm biased because I have an MBA and I teach in an MBA program. It, it was a game changer for me. You know, I mean, there's a way that we're taught in medical school. And obviously, I went to medical school a while ago, so it was probably even a lot more traditional than the teaching now. But that says that, you know, you're the physician. You always have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to make decisions. And I think what the MBA teaches you is that, you know, for many decisions, obviously, if you're running a code, that's a different thing. But for many decisions, it is critically important not to want to be the only voice, not to want to be the smartest person in the room, and to actually build a team around you to make better decisions. So that was a game changer. Obviously, some of the financial tools, you know, what I always say is there's no document that you can put in front of me at a meeting that is going to scare me. I know how to read a balance sheet now, and I understand, you know, cost accounting and also sort of business planning and specifically operations management, because a lot of times people will come to me, not just in radiology and say, you know, wait times are too long. We need more doctors or, and often we do need more doctors in radiology right now. We need a lot more doctors, but the ability to assess and, and evaluate a process and understand, and you know this, Daniel, where's the bottleneck? What's the problem we need to fix first? If you fix one bottleneck, we'll always move to the next one. That kind of methodology is something that was really transformative for me. It's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that before. And this this concept of structured problem solving is sort of business 101, especially if you ever work in strategy consulting. It's you know, how to break a big problem down into small parts. That's a skill that I learned kind of right out of college. And so it's in, ingrained in me, but you could imagine going eight years, 10 years of medical training and that not ever being taught in any structured way. So really interesting. So what are the courses that you actually teach? What are they called? Yeah, so I teach two courses and they're they're in an arc. So we start with healthcare leadership, which is sort of really about your personal leadership. The second one is called healthcare transformation and innovation. And it looks at why is it so hard to innovate in healthcare? And, and we look at successful innovations and as well as innovations that have failed and you know, use some case studies to really help our students start to think in a more transformative way and think about how they can be influential in their organization. And then it feeds on to the third part of the story, which is their capstone project, which is where they our study teams go into an outside company and do a consulting project. How many years have you been teaching now? We've started the program in 2017. I was academic director for the first year. So I guess I've been teaching it for five years now. So of your students, how many have gone on to stay in healthcare and, and you know, have you kept tabs on anyone doing anything interesting? Yeah, so our, our code, this is a specific healthcare program. So about half of the students are providers, physicians, okay. largely physicians, and half are non. So they're all in healthcare, so likely to stay. But I mean, of course, I love our students. I feel like all of them are my mentees. So our CIO at Wild Cornell now is a graduate of the program. He went from, you know, being part of our IT team to being the CIO. Um, the director of our emergency department in the Brooklyn Hospital is a graduate of the program. So, you know, we've seen a lot of our students take on new leadership roles. So I'm so proud of all of them. Amazing. So switching gears a little bit into economics, you actually gave a noon conference on MRI Online 
three years ago, this was actually, you were one of the first to jump on in the, in the heat of the pandemic. And so we appreciate you doing that. And one of the things that you talked about, your talk was a little bit different than our typical clinical talk was about how challenging the radiology economic environment is. And at the time you cited Mednax selling their radiology business at a loss as a potential bellwether moment. Fast forward a few years, just this week, Envision filed for bankruptcy. Rad Partners bond prices are trading at low levels. What's going on in the economic environment? You know, how has it changed over the past three years since since you you know first filled us in? A lot, I think, and I'm I'm not obviously deep in the weeds of things like the Envision bankruptcy, but clearly the externalities around inflation and interest rate costs going up uh, and borrowing costs going up. I think are meaningful when we've got these large companies. Certainly the demand hasn't gone down. I'm sorry, you can tell, you can hear them in New York City with the sirens. The demand has certainly, certainly continued to grow. But unfortunately, through a number of challenges, you know, Medicare shifting dollars to E&M services, the conversion factor basically eroding over time. And then also things like price transparency and surprise bill, legislation, which you know we really don't probably have the time to go into, but but has really settled out in a way that takes something that's admirable. Of course, we want our patients to know what their care is going to cost. But I would say that the stakeholder that's gotten the best benefit out of that so far is the payers, because I think it's, you know, they've gotten the upper hand in the dispute resolution around those types of processes, such that I think they can use that leverage to drive down negotiated rates. So go back to what I was talking about, about, you know, when you've got a population of patients, everything from, you know, fewer uninsured now, but Medicaid to commercial insurance, most health systems are looking to subsidize the work that they do for patients with Medicaid and Medicare through their commercial insurance. And we're seeing less of a delta there, and it's just going to be more difficult to keep things going. So if you're the, I don't know, people in charge of healthcare for the U.S. government, and you're hearing about all this, what are they thinking? Are they thinking this is working as planned because prices are going down? And yeah, reimbursements went down for radiologists, but you know, whatever, radiologists make a lot of money. And talk me through, because you, you know, you're talking about different stakeholders and approach to problem solving. What are everyone's point of views and, and how do we kind of bring everyone together to the, a better path forward? Well, look, I mean, you know, we are 13 years out from the Affordable Care Act now. And, you know, sometimes it seems like that's a done deal, right? That we reshaped coverage. Then we have, you know, a federal judge in Texas talking about, you know, removing the requirement to cover preventive services. So is it working well? It's working well, depending on your perspective. I don't think we're seeing active legislative efforts to overturn the Affordable Care Act anymore, but we're still seeing some instability in people's coverage, right? There's also the fact that we're going to see the impact of the ending of the public health emergency, which may or may not mean much for radiology specifically, but certainly means a lot for healthcare, right? In terms of coverage of certain services related to the pandemic, licensure requirements, scope of practice extensions for providers. So why I say all that is to say that I don't think you can ever ask a question of how is it working without understanding that it depends on your perspective. I think for many individual radiologists right now, it feels like it's not working very well, right? Working harder than ever, getting paid less for studies, you know, a lot of uncertainty around what's happening with price transparency and just real burnout, like a lot of physicians are feeling. So turning a little bit towards advocacy, 
I think you've looked at these problems over the course of your career and said, okay, great, I'm an optimist. Like, how can I steer the industry in a direction that's positive? So, you know, facing these challenges ahead, like what are the things that, and you're, you, know, you just mentioned you're coming from the ACR meeting, what are the things radiologists should be advocating for? I think most importantly, a seat at the table because there are always gonna be multiple priorities, multiple things to deal with but we're not going to get to deal with any of them if we're not involved. And when I say a seat at the table, that's everything from making sure that we have, you know, committed volunteers showing up to every single meeting at which payment policy is discussed. So that's all of the committees under the AMA where we actually derive CPT codes, RVU values. It's every initiative that Medicare has around new payment models. It's private payer technology panels. It's government advocacy. So it, it's a huge effort. That seat at the table is a huge effort. And I think that the most important thing that an individual radiologist can do is start by paying their ACR dues because the volunteers are one piece of it. The expert staff is a critical portion of it. And you don't get that without your ACR dues, right? And just even the number of ACR members is important because things like representation at the American Medical Association, which is an important parallel advocacy process, the size of your delegation is dependent on the number of your members. So start by getting everyone to pay their ACR dues and supporting those volunteers and making sure that if you're in a practice and you've got, you know, just the same as I started going to the ACR, if you've got an early career radiologist who's interested in this, as a practice, make a commitment to let them go, you know, give them a few days to go to these various meetings and learn and see if they want to get more involved. You know, I hoped when I was economics chair that the membership trusted me and the team to understand how to prioritize the various issues. And I certainly think that the team that's running economics at the ACR right now is fantastic. And I, I feel very comfortable that they know how to balance the issues. So let me stop there. Yeah, it's, it's a critically important point. And I haven't thought much about this because I'm not a radiologist. You haven't asked me for any dues. Um, but my wife, she's a fellow, so she'll be joining a private practice here in two months. And I will encourage her if she's the only one that listens to this podcast, that, that she needs to pay her dues. And, you know, on the advocacy front, it's critically important. And I think something that's hard for people to, you know, we, we just spent two minutes prior to this talking about rising volumes, burnout, to find the time in the day to then go advocate for your industry is hard. And I wonder too, just how we encourage people to do it and, and finding finding ways to make it easy for people to engage too. And one of the, I imagine things that's probably been a help to the ACR is things like this, Zoom, remote collaboration. You don't have to just fly to DC for the annual meeting. You know, what ways have you made it easier for people to get involved? Yeah, I mean, those are all applicable, but let me just talk about the opportunities that individual radiologists have. Every time you connect with a patient or a referring physician, in a positive way, you are advocating for the value of radiology. You know, when we had the, the self-referral wars in the early part of this millennium, where we saw other specialties doing imaging, referring to their own imaging facilities at a you know, rate four times, they would refer to radiology. So clearly a, a concern about a higher rate of inappropriate imaging. We never got much traction with that because every time we would say, this is a problem, those specialties would wheel their patients out who would say, well, my doctor would never do the wrong thing for me. So we have not typically had patients advocating for us. So at an individual mm -hmm. radiology level, every time you talk to patients, and, and that has played out well for us. When we revalued the mammography codes at the Rock a few years ago, 
we were able to derive additional value and additional payment for diagnostic mammography based on the fact that radiologists talk to patients when they have diagnostic mammograms. And, mm. you know, there's probably, there was probably a time in the past where everyone would have laughed at that. But now there were enough people around the table who said, yes, when I needed a biopsy, the radiologist talked to me. Or when my wife needed a biopsy, the radiologist talked to me. So just even that act of speaking to a patient is a valuable act of advocacy. And then the other thing is, is, you know, it's, we had the Capitol Hill day this Wednesday and everyone goes to the Hill and that's great. But just remember that the person that's your city councilor or your mayor today is potentially going to be the Chuck Schumer or the Mitch McConnell of tomorrow. So connecting with your local representatives in your mm. practice is critically important because even at the state level, there's significant policy decisions made. Remember, Medicaid is a state program. So connecting one-on-one with your patients and connecting with your local representatives is something that can be very easy to do in your practice. I love that. So in addition to advocacy for stronger economics, one of the things you advocate for also is, of course, and most importantly, is better health outcomes. And so, you know, a few things going on here. One is you're quoted recently in the U.S. News about increasing out-of-pocket expenses for women getting follow-ups in mammography, and this was leading to worse cancer outcomes, worse cancer risk, especially impacting Black women. Now, since you and I planned this conversation, and since you wrote that article, and even in just the last few weeks, we've had some positive momentum there from the ACR, as well as from the USPTO. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, here where advocacy is is impacting patient health. Sure. Well, we'll start with the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force updated recommendations, which came out this week, recommending biennial mammography from 40 and earlier risk assessment for women at high risk, Black women and women with other higher risk. It's not where we need it to be because we're recommending every year 40 and above, but it's better than where it was. So, you know, I, I think that's an important thing because the bottom line is, you know, these recommendations are what make payers cover mammography, right? You know, these are publicly traded entities. They're not going to cover something that they don't have to. So it's, it's progress, but it's, it, you know, there's still a ways to go. The work that we did, one of the things that's happened since the Affordable Care Act is that many more people are insured. But for many of these patients, their insurance doesn't kick in until they've paid a large amount out of pocket. So the individual exchange plans that people can buy, the bronze level, sort of which is the lowest premium, can come with what a deductible of several thousand dollars. So you have to pay several thousand dollars out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. Your screening mammography, because it's a preventive service, is covered 100%. You don't have to pay anything out of pocket for that. But if you have to come back for a diagnostic, and we know that good practice of screening requires us to call back about 10% of our patients. If you have to come back and you have one of these plans, you may end up paying the entire cost of that mammogram. It could be several mm. hundred dollars. If you need an ultrasound on top of that, another several hundred dollars. And you know what we found is that the more patients had, were exposed to out-of-pocket costs, the less likely they were to come back, either for the recommended follow-up or for the screening next year. So it seems to me that we have an opportunity to do more for our patients and make sure that if we're the ones calling them back, we shouldn't be penalizing them for that. Well, and just today, Katie Couric spoke out against the USPTO recommendation for this very reason, saying, hey, yeah, it's great. We moved the age up to 40, but no mention of the benefits of additional screening. And Mm -hmm. so now you're going to have just more, especially younger women, likelier to be on these high deductible plans saying, I don't. I don't know if I can afford that. So it's critically important. 
another, you know, probably the area of population health that I'm most passionate about and just flummoxed by is the struggles to drive adoption in lung cancer CT. This is proven to save lives. And yet adoption, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but sub 10% of eligible patients. What's going on? And how can radiologists do better here? How can society do better here? It's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot. It's multifactorial. So look, we'll start with the original coverage decision. So, you know, the National Lung Screening Trial run by the American College of Radiology, 50,000 participants was is stopped early because the benefit is so obvious. So we know we have something that works. Subsequent trials have shown an even larger benefit, especially in women. But as we went, and I was leading the Economics Commission at the time, as we were going to Medicare to ask for a, a decision to cover it, there were definitely concerns about were we going to screen people who didn't really need it? What were we going to do about the incidental findings that it threw up? So the way that the benefit was designed, I think hasn't helped us. So there was a requirement for a shared decision-making visit with the patient's primary care or other physician prior to them being able to schedule the lung cancer screening. Well, you know how busy your primary care physician is. You know, that was a challenging ask. The other thing is that the eligibility for screening was set, you know, with a specific pack year history. And, you know, that's much harder than mammography. Mammography is, you know, you're a woman or, you know, somebody who is at risk for breast cancer and, you know, you're over a certain age and you're now you're eligible. Think about the calculus of age, pack years, you know, who patients don't come into you and say, I have a 30 pack year smoking history. You know, maybe they smoked for a while, they stopped for a while. Now they're smoking a little bit more. So it is not something that either our referring physicians or frankly, our electronic health records have been able to really synthesize very easily. But the exact same issue that I talked about with mammography, with lung cancer screening, where you get your lung cancer screening CT and then perhaps you need to come back for a follow-up and it's not covered, magnify that because CT is a much more expensive exam than mammography or ultrasound. So that's also a deterrent. And then I, I think there are specific patient populations that are at risk for lung cancer screening, patients with mental illness who are less likely to be able to navigate our already complex and, and fractured healthcare system. It will not be included, I think, in this in this potential benefit. So how do we fix it? Ah, it's a great question. Well, the, you know, I think that the ACR is looking at how to potentially redefine the benefit. We've seen a lot of great work on how to increase participation. Some people doing standout work in this area, Ashley Prosper in California, who's really looking at, you know, targeted and culturally appropriate education materials. Efren Flores at MGH, who's looking at specifically how we communicate with patients with mental illness. So, you know, I think we are starting to look at, at how we can increase participation. But I think the, you'll see the eligibility criteria, I think, change over these coming years. But I would love to see us do the same thing with lung cancer screening as with breast cancer screening. Let's hold our patients harmless on the recommended follow-up. Yeah, I think it's really critically important. And uh, so I appreciate you walking me through how so many seemingly small and innocuous decisions that kind of seem unrelated in a sense, mm -hmm. um, sort of common sense policies end up driving orders of magnitude more complexity that drive such bad utilization rates. And, you know, I was thinking about this for myself and all of a sudden I'm reading all about this, doing research, going deep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my dad, my dad has a bunch of years of pack history. I have no idea how many. And he stopped mm -hmm. smoking at some point when I was a kid. I was like, I should call him and have him get a, a screening. And then I looked at the criteria closer and I go, oh, well, I guess he's not 
eligible because he's mm-hmm. been he quit smoking i don't know 23 years ago instead of 18 and and all of a sudden we're sitting here with this analysis paralysis of you know you should call his primary care doctor is his primary care doctor gonna say no and then what mm-hmm. and and so it's a mess but you know going back to the mba you know it was a time when we really did have to get a lot of stakeholders on board there were very real concerns so you know with the legislative process sometimes you you have to make compromises yeah. you know you, we still got it covered so I think that can be an education too, to understand, yeah. you know, le- legislation can be a messy process. Well, it's the incredibly important work of pushing the boulder up the hill every day and making progress. And here we are in 2023, making another small win for mammography. And I think I'd love to see that same daily push, daily energy around lung cancer screening, because I think it could have as big an impact. So one other topic that's near and dear to both of our hearts is women in radiology. I know I'm not the perfect vehicle for women in radiology, but I'm an okay vessel. My wife is a radiologist. Um, We've had a number of female physicians actually from the AWR on the podcast who do just such important work talking about, you know, how to improve representation. And, And it looks like it really stalled out. So I guess in the 80s, we were at about 25 25% of women are radiologists and we're still there. So what's going on? And and then if you expand your scope beyond women to sort of minorities, the problem gets even more stark and single digit percentages of African-American representation and and on down the line. So what's going on? And, And I know you made this a really big priority during your tenure at ACR. You should really be commended for the work that you did. You're both making it a top issue for the college, as well as, you know, bringing in a bunch of people who have carried that on since you've left, I know, um, that stayed true. So what progress is being made? You know, I think if you were at the ACR meeting, you'd feel very excited about the diversity in radiology. You know, so I think our pipeline is strong. I think it's also important to realize that the U.S. looks one way, but the majority of radiologists in Spain, in Saudi Arabia, in many other countries, the majority of radiologists are female. So, Fascinating. Yeah. I think that the work of increasing diversity is constant because all of us, myself included, are inclined to revert back to people who are like me, people I feel comfortable with. And we have to, you know, for me, it's about keeping front and center that we will make better decisions. We will advance the profession and certainly advance the profession in terms of delivering better care to to the communities we serve if we have diverse leadership, but it's not a one and done. I mean, you know, I, I always try to be very intentional when I was populating committees at the college that I was being diverse and not just gender and ethnicity, but also type of practice, where in the country you practiced. And, you know, if I didn't pay attention to it, it didn't happen. And that's not because people weren't well-intentioned, but it was because everyone's busy and it's just, you know, I'll just pull the people that I, you know, I know. And, so I think it's, it is a constant, I don't say battle because everyone, I think everyone realizes it's a good thing. Oh, most people, but you know, the reality of our daily work can distract us. Yeah. What do you think? And maybe this has changed even as recently as the most recent residency class. So when my, when my wife did residency match, it was the worst year in years. It, you know, there was a bunch of unfilled positions. It was peak AI hype and hysteria. And five years later, six years later, the, that trend is obviously reversed. Has that put more women in the pipeline for mm-hmm. the match? Or, you know, maybe 
people are wisening up to the fact that you can work remotely in this role some significant portion of the time. And are there any tailwinds, things to be excited about sort of for the younger generation? Well, I don't know if I would credit that sort of little AI winter that we had in radiology recruitment for things like the statements that, you know, the ACR and most other organizations have come out with in terms of supporting parental leave, the fact that trainees can now have parental leave without having to extend their residency. But that's critically important. I mean, that, and that needs to happen everywhere. We need to support parents of all genders to make sure that we are appealing to the most people possible. But, you know, I mean, you might have seen my tweet after the match about one of the major programs in this country that is a large program and didn't match a single woman. So I still think that we have to make sure that we are presenting to applicants a view of a department and a training program where they feel like they're going to be welcomed. I don't know what happened in that program, but you've got to ask yourself why that happened. My wife was one of 12 and it was 11 boys and her, and she's actually there <laughs> visiting today. She just sent me, sent me a picture with her and, and the bros and we loved them. It was great for me. I made lots of friends. Uh, she did too. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you got to measure it. At the end of the day, it doesn't feel fun. But if you don't make it a priority and you don't measure it and you don't talk about it in every meeting, well, there's 25 other problems you have to deal with. And so you got mm -hmm. to put your money where your mouth is in terms of how you spend your time. So, and Taylor just missed the window for the ACR new guidelines. So we have three babies in residency with just a few weeks off each time before she was back to work. And so she felt acutely the pressure to get back to work, you know, after uh -huh. just four weeks. And so while it fills us with joy to know that she's the last class that has to deal with that and your leadership and the, the college's leadership on that issue is, is really instrumental. I, I'm not going to take that credit. I mean, the AAWR, Elizabeth Arleo, my Wild Cornell colleague in particular, and so many others did an amazing job. And I will say that we took a lot out of their playbook when we were getting Resolution 11 passed at this last meeting, which asked the ACR to oppose criminalization of physicians for providing health care. Well, this was so much fun. I'm so grateful to you for spending time with me and sharing your views um, and experiences with our audience. Uh, final question, you know, what advice you have for, for young radiologists entering the, the field today? I have to say, I'm often a little jealous because I think about the way in which the practice of radiology is going to continue to evolve and evolve, and they're just starting their career. And I'm obviously in the last third of mine. But I would say, you know, get involved in organized radiology spend as much time as possible with your radiology community, learning from each other, because it has been an incredible source of professional development and friendship for me. And hopefully Amazing. I've done some good. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.